You're listening to the Dear Baseball Gods podcast. I'm Dan Blewett, and on this show, you'll learn advanced concepts in baseball explained simply. I'm here to guide you on your baseball journey and help you paddle through what's now an ocean of misinformation, guruism, and overly technical diamond babble. All right, I'm Dan Blewett, and in today's talk, we're going to discuss diamond babble. So this is a... uh, a phrase, or, or, or not a phrase, this is a term that I've coined uh, because I've become increasingly frustrated with the biomechanical junk terminology used to describe baseball actions that's really just popularized uh, by gurus and people who don't really understand what they're talking about. And so they hide behind this fancy language to describe things that you could honestly, if you took the time and the care, and you understood it well enough, you could describe anything in baseball to a 10 year old. This is really a sticking point for me and a lot of my peers that I respect because when you are a coach, it's your job not to make yourself look as smart as possible, but it's your job to help other people learn and grow. And when you're using terminology that talks above them, it just shows a disrespect, a lack of respect for their intelligence. And it also, I think exposes what is really just a a lack of depth of knowledge on your own part because if you can't simplify something then you don't understand it well enough anything can be boiled down into into layman terminology or uh using analogies all this other stuff to help people understand so let me give you some examples of diamond babble i'm going to read some real tweets from our fabulous world of twitter okay this is referring to catching slow motion extension to flexion mapping there's tremendous value in going fast and allowing the body to self-organize slowing it down also has a role in high level motor pattern development okay do you have any idea what he was referring to he was basically referring to a catcher like turning his wrist and hand over and learning to like kind of catch through the ball that's how we explained it flexion or extension to flexion mapping that's where we are in 2020 describing catcher actions behind the plate it's it's baffling all right here's another one catcher throwing patterns are important to look at as they can easily slip into compensation patterns here's a guy who was going from elbow flexion to extension and was dealing with some anterior shoulder discomfort due to the humeral head being pushed forward at layback so this requires you as a coach or a player or a, a parent who wants to learn um, it requires you to know what uh, a compensation pattern is. What is a compensation pattern? Uh, elbow flexion, which is just the angle of bend in your elbow, uh, to extension, which is you straightening your elbow, uh, to anterior shoulder discomfort. Anterior is the front of your shoulder and the humeral head, which is the, the ball of your, uh, your upper arm is your humerus. And then, uh, being pushed forward into layback, your arm lays back. Um, and external rotation, external rotation is your arm going back into that gross position you see when you throw. So again, <laughs> here's the guy who's going from elbow flexion to extension and was dealing with some anterior shoulder comfort. Uh, he could have said, here's a guy who was, uh, you know, going from, I don't even know what he's actually getting at. Cause this one doesn't have a video with it. Um, but you know, he's had some pain in the front of his shoulder, but he had to use the word anterior. Uh, here's another one. Um, the task constraints band and one hop in parentheses assist in more efficient glove path as well as elbow extension after the catch. Fascinating. Really learned a lot there. Um, here's one about hitting 
For context, the barrel doesn't need to be delivered with this type of release pattern. Ooh, do you know what a release pattern isn't hitting? Because I don't. Uh, this is just one release technique. You can also deliver the, deliver the head in a couple other ways. The principle, though, is that it should be releasing proximal to distal in quotation marks uh, or in parentheses in to out, which is good. He was trying to summarize. I appreciate that. Gaining speed. Different hitters create this. Is a, this is a three part tweet. Different hitters create different degrees of separation, but they shouldn't be disconnected. The goal of separation is to pull out fascial slack from the spiral sling and gain crossbody connection, not create disconnection and drag the barrel like a truck pulling a trailer. For context, because this is good, we do need context. For context, the barrel doesn't need to be delivered with this type of release pattern. I mean, I think that's obvious at this point. This is just one release technique. Um, actually, sorry, that was the first tweet. I, I went backward there. I apologize. Um, here's another one. Been really feeling the concept of no release medicine ball work lately. The impulse it creates on the body to generate stability and rapidly distribute uh, tension is something I think has a lot of value in instituting medicine ball work into a program. Fascinating. So I'm going to read one more. This is like the max. This is like the Mac daddy. Oh, good. Good Lord. A consideration for pelvic recoil. This is a guy talking about hitting a consideration for pelvic recoil uh, semicolon. I do love the use of semicolons, by the way. I use them in my writing, but I don't know if Twitter is really the place for it, although I do use them in Twitter. So I guess I can't really hate here. A consideration for pelvic recoil. Pelvis is pulled into the lead femur via adductor magnus and the acetabulum rotates internally on the femoral head via anterior glute fibers. The ER fibers of the glute med undergo stretch, add high velocity to the biomechanics and reflex occurs. I mean, out there in audio land, there's no way you have any idea what that tweet meant. There's like no context through which you could figure out what this guy's talking about. And even with the accompanying photos or videos or gifts, it's just diamond babble. It's just nonsense. It's just junk terminology. And so what I really respect about a lot of the people that mentored me in the strength and conditioning industry, and I'll list a couple. Um, Nick Tuminello uh, was one of my mentors. I interned for him. He's a world-renowned uh, personal trainer, strength coach, writer. He does seminars all over the world, and he gives people really good, actionable, like time-tested, logical fitness advice. And it was something that I always use in all of my strength programs. Um, Mike Reinold, I never worked for him. I never interned under him, but uh, I worked as an editor on his Elite Baseball Performance website. He had asked me to speak at one of his seminars. And he is just a guy who just gives, gives, gives to other people who are trying to make a name for themselves in the industry. He's someone that like really lifts people up. And he is one of the smartest guys, uh, his hands in all sorts of research. I mean, he is one of like the leading baseball researchers and he makes everything clear, layman and simple. And uh, one of my others is Alan Nathan. He is the essentially like the, the big name in the baseball physics. So he's at POB guy on Twitter. And I mean, he's a world renowned, like in creating the BB core standard and creating, uh, you know, different densities for baseballs and measuring uh, seams, all the changes in the baseball and in bats, all these bat certifications. Alan's in part of panels helping to understand and like certify the physics essentially for all this stuff. So, I mean, incredibly smart when it comes to the spin, the physics, the flight of baseballs. I mean, he's been a physics professor for 40 years. Uh, he's a, um, I guess he's retired now, but he's still a professor emeritus. 
And if you go to listen to one of his talks, because I've spoken at Saber Seminar, he's, spoke, he's been at Saber Seminar since his inception. He helps organize it. You listen to one of his physics of baseball talks, every single person in the audience can understand every word he says. And they leave thinking, wow, I just learned a lot about physics today. Like I, I, I was here to learn about baseball. I want to know more about it, but I don't have a background in physics and I could understand everything Dr. Nathan said. And so there are lots of people out there like them in, in many industries who work really hard to help other people understand, knowing that I'm never going to, you know, grab a, a physics book and try to, you know, do my own equations and really dive into physics. I'm just not, I've got other priorities, but I do want to learn. And there's a lot of people like that. And you shouldn't have to have a biomechanics degree to understand pitching parents. You have so much, you have so much on your plate, driving your kids around, uh, you know, raising your kids, going to work, like you have so much on your plate. You're the busiest people ever. You don't have time to just be trying to, f to solve these equational tweets to figure out if your son can swing a bat or not, or if your daughter can swing a bat or not. So it's really, it's a sad trend. And that's part of uh, this podcast. And it's part of my brand in general is explaining things simply because there is nothing in baseball. And this is why my first book was called pitching isn't complicated. There is nothing in baseball that is so complex, whether it's a movement, whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is. There's nothing in baseball that's so complex that you could not simplify it and teach it to a 10 year old. There's just, there's not one thing you can use other words. You can find ways to make people understand and help them along if you try. But this is a really disturbing trend in baseball where people are trying to separate themselves from the crowd. They're trying to stand out. And when you don't have a really robust playing background, or you don't have something to hang your hat on, that's when I think people, their insecurity comes out and then they try to make stuff sounds sound complicated. They try to reinvent the wheel. They try to, you know, make a name for themselves using this complex terminology. Cause if they just make it simple when they don't really have the on the field experience or the really deep coaching experience, then they don't feel like they have anything, which I understand. But, um, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a growing problem and, uh, you should demand more from coaches. So if you're out there on the web and you're reading through and, uh, and earnestly, honestly trying to learn, and they're just passing this junk off, throw the hashtag in there. Hey, this is diamond babble. You don't actually have to do that, but ask them, Hey, what did this tweet mean? I would genuinely like to learn, but I don't understand the language you're using. People need to do better as coaches explaining this stuff. And, and you deserve better as parents, players, and coaches. All right. In today's 90 second mindset, we are going to go over first pitch strikes for pitchers. So your first pitch mindset is really important. And this is what I want you to, this is the thing I'm going to impress the most on you today. When you're faced with an O count, brand new at bat, your number one thing you should do as a pitcher, or you should be thinking about, especially if you have a little bit of giddy up on your fastball. So say you throw a little bit harder than average. This is especially true. Your first pitch should be aggressive in the middle part of the plate. And here's why. So number one, you're not going to have scouting reports and younger uh, levels of baseball. You're not going to have video. You might have game changer and some of the you know basic stuff it can tell you, but in general, you're not going to know much about these players and you're not going to know much about what they can do or what their swing looks like, their bat speed, all that stuff until the back gets underway. So the first pitch, I think everyone knows, and you've been harped on that getting ahead is extremely important, which it absolutely is. Getting to 01 is one of the best things you can do as a pitcher. It allows you to then start to go away from the middle of the plate, 
because you have more margin for error now because falling you know missing with a ball doesn't hurt you as much as if you're 1-0 if you're 1-0 and you miss now you're 2-0 now you're in deep trouble of having to catch up in the count where a guy might take you deep so the important thing here is we want to be aggressive to get in the behind the count but the the other tertiary benefit here or the secondary benefit i don't know why i keep using the word tertiary so much the secondary benefit of going down the middle is that you get to figure out what their bat speed is especially if you throw a fastball so I threw harder than average and I had some some sort of like spin stuff and some giddy up on my fastball. I would challenge guys on the first pitch because I knew if I did that, A, I'd get ahead. If they swung some percent of the time, they'd be out, right? They'd put the ball in play and just fly out or pop out or ground out on the first pitch. And if they did swing and they didn't put the ball in play, I was going to figure out where their bat speed was. Because if I throw right down the middle hard and they're late on it, it gives me a lot of info. Now I can say, okay, if he can't catch up down the middle, I can go in. And he's going to have zero chance of catching up, right? Or if he smokes it foul, I can say, okay, well, he's definitely got the bat speed to catch up. Um, you know, maybe it's time to be a little more careful or go to an off-speed pitch or something. Or maybe he was just ambushing. But you should, it, the, the mindset thing I want to leave you with today is take the first pitch of the bat as a fact-finding mission. It's extremely rare that you're going to get taken deep where a, hit, a hitter's really going to be ready to smash one on the first pitch. You're going to have a, a little more room for error. Hitters like to see the back get kind of underway and, and be a little more comfortable. So take the first pitch as a fact-finding mission. Make it your mission to get ahead, compete in the middle of the strike zone, throw it hard. And this is obviously you can throw off-speed stuff on the first pitch sometimes. I'm not saying that it's always fastballs because it's certainly not. But when you're going to throw a fastball or it's like a non-pressure situation, second inning, you know, like nothing's going right now, bases are empty, it makes a lot of sense to try to get ahead with the fastball. And if you do that, don't be too fine. Compete over the middle knowing that you're going to get strikes. You're going to get first pitch outs. They're going to be enticed to swing. And when they do swing, you're going to get a lot of intel, a lot of info on what they can do with the bat, how fast their hands are, how fast their bat speed is. And from there, now you have a little bit of an idea that you can start to map out your pitch sequencing for the rest of the at bat. All right, now's time for our listener Q&A portion of the show. Questions from the pious. Pious means to be devoutly faithful, and if you're devout to the game of baseball, then you're exactly the kind of person I want to hear from. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, please email a voice recording to hello at danblewitt.com. All right, so today's question comes from Morgan. Hey, Dan, this is Morgan from Orlando, Florida. My question is, how many pitches should I have in my pitch repertoire? Should I focus on having two breaking balls, or should I just focus on having one? Thanks for answering my question. All right, thanks, Morgan. Appreciate the question. And this is a good one that I really like answering. So uh, basically, the answer is every pitcher should aspire to have three really high-quality pitches before he goes on to a fourth. And this is what you see in most pro players. Most guys uh, enter college baseball with a fastball, a pretty good second pitch, and a very mediocre third pitch. That's typically how it is. Then if they're good enough to go into pro ball, they'll have a fastball with enough velocity, which usually means low 90s or better, and then a good second pitch, which either means their primary breaking ball or their changeup, and then a third pitch that's kind of okay still, hopefully butting into another out pitch. But most pitchers, even in the big leagues, only have like one out pitch, um, maybe two if they're lucky, and that's exceptional it's what we want basically most relievers in the big leagues have two out pitches which is their fastball mid to upper 90s and one secondary pitch usually a slider curveball breaking ball 
So uh, my roundabout point here is that you're not gonna need two breaking balls. And here's part of the reason why. Number one, you definitely need a change up at pretty much every level of baseball, whether you're a starter, reliever, as you go. That's something that's gonna get the opposite handed guy out. So if you only have two breaking balls, they're both gonna break into opposite handed uh, batters. So if you're righty and you have two breaking balls, both those breaking balls are gonna break into lefties. You want something that'll fade away from lefties if you're a righty or away from righties if you're a lefty. Secondly, why are you gonna have two breaking balls? How do you know which one to use and when? That's a really good question. They, they all need to have a specific purpose. So for most pitchers below the big leagues, there's not a really good reason to use one breaking ball or another. Like, why would you throw a slider to this guy instead of a curveball if your curveball is good? Or why would you, you know, vice versa? Every pitch that's in your repertoire is a tool. So this is kind of like having two power drills. It's like, why do you need two power drills? If you have one really good power drill, it'll drive screws, you know, it'll drill holes, it'll do all these different things and last a really long time. You don't really need to carry two around. And that's often the case. If you have a dynamite slider, why do you need to add a curveball? What, what situation is the curveball better than a slider when you have a really good slider? And the answer is that it's, it's, it just isn't most of the time. Typically, when you see guys add a second breaking ball, there's someone like Cole Hamels who he made millions and millions of dollars on fastball, really good changeup, really great curveball, right? And then later in his career, as his velocity started to decline slightly, he started adding a slider because he's like, okay, this is a very purposeful pitch that I can help it you know, I can bury a lefty with, or I can maybe bury it on the hands of a righty. It was a very purposeful pitch. It's like getting a very specialty, specialized tool that you're only gonna use once in a while. So that's typically how the secondary breaking ball gets added in. So most times with young pitchers, with amateur pitchers, and they have two breaking balls, both of them are pretty mediocre, and, and usually that's to cover up because they don't have a changeup. But if you have a really good fastball and you can command it and you have a good changeup, you only need one breaking ball. That's really the reality. And you just want to devote as much time, especially when you're young, to building up all three of those pitches to where all three are excellent and could potentially be strikeout pitches um, before adding that fourth. And again, that fourth is really where the second breaking ball is going to come in. Well, that's it for today's episode of Dear Baseball Gods. If you enjoy the show and would like to support me while improving your baseball IQ, buy one of my books or enroll today in an online pitching course. Sign up for any of my courses through the links in the show notes and save 20% with code BASEBALLGODS just for being a listener. My online courses walk you through pitching mechanics, strategy, learning new pitches, and mental skills training. They're start to finish an amazing solution for pitchers, parents, and coaches who want step-by-step -step instruction. Pitching Isn't Complicated, my first book, is a thorough pitching manual with strategy, pitch grips, mechanics, mindset, routines, and other high-level pitching concepts. Not sure what your son is in for if he falls in love with the game? Dear Baseball Gods, the book is my memoir, a story of growing up in the game, persevering through injuries and setbacks, and struggling with identity when I finally had to clean out my locker. Buy a copy today via the links in the show notes, available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook if you just can't get enough of my voice. Be sure to subscribe to my weekly email list where you'll get updates on all my new videos and episodes. Nearly 4,000 people get my emails, and you should too. Sign up through the link in the show notes. Lastly, who do you know who can use some good advice? Please share this podcast with a friend, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and subscribe to my YouTube channel where you'll find this podcast and hundreds of baseball instructional videos. 
As always, hustle and stay pious. I'm Dan Blewett, and I'll see you next time.